Uh, tonight, I have the privilege of introducing our speaker, Jesse. Yeah. Half the room already knows and loves her, so the other half, get ready. Uh, one of my favorite things about Jesse is that when we, when we read in Matthew 5, 8, uh, Jesus is saying this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then Psalm 51, 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When I think about Jesse, I think someone who is pure of heart and has the right spirit. She loves people well. She loves people when it inconveniences her. And in my mind, she lives out, um, yeah, she lives out this radical compassion for others. Um, and so I am proud to call her a friend, a colleague. I get to be the brother she never knew she wanted in me. Um, I'm glad to have her here at Weekly Worship. So can you help me welcome the one and only Jesse Ford. Thank you, Blaine. Well, it's good to be here tonight. Um, Quick follow-up on the question, though. I just need to do an informal poll. How many people would say they start listening to Christmas music um, not before Thanksgiving? After Thanksgiving, you listen to Christmas music, but not before. It's a hard line. Okay, how many, your hard line is like November 1st? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. How many of you um, don't want to limit the joy of um, celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior to one season? Okay. You can, yeah, you know where I land. But anyway, I just like to know that. I don't know why. It's fascinating to me what people think. Anyway. I'm Jesse. Hi. Um, I a uh, little bit about me since I don't think I know most of you. Um, so I grew up in Montana. Um, I came out to DC in 2013 to start school at Georgetown. Graduated in 2017, and then, uh, like Blaine said, for two years after that, I worked on staff uh, at Georgetown Chi Alpha, which was an absolute blast. Um, and now I'm back in school, so I'm getting my master's from Georgetown, uh, master's in English. <laughs> Catherine and I are in a class together. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and then I also work part-time uh, taking calls on the National Human Trafficking Hotline, so that is my life right now. Um, also, more excitingly, uh, I'm engaged. This is my fiance. Isn't he the cutest? I know. Look at that beard. It's impressive. Um, his name is David. He's the best person in the world. Um, for those of you who've been asking, no, we don't have a date yet. We're both very bad at planning things. <laughs> it's not good, but, you know, it's fine. Whatever. We'll get married at some point. Um, anyway. It's, in, it's really an honor to be here tonight. I'm so excited to be back with you guys, to get to worship with you, to talk a little bit about something that's actually been on my heart for a while. Um, and so I'm just really glad to be here and excited to be wrapping up this series, too. I've enjoyed listening along on the podcast and hearing pretty much everybody on staff uh, speak in this one. So that was fun. Uh, I got a, got a whole array. It was awesome. Um, I hope that in this past month and a half, you've kind of gotten a new perspective on the book of Genesis, um, opened up some stories and some narratives that maybe had grown a little bit stale for you. If you've been in the church for a while, you might have heard these stories a lot. And so um, 
you know, hopefully a little bit of new life has been breathed into them. Um, because, you know, it can be hard to connect, I think, sometimes to these stories because we're so far removed from them in time and in culture. Um, but that is really the beautiful thing about scripture, and that's what Blaine and Natalie and Jolene and Alexis all have pulled out from these stories, um, that the Bible reveals these really deep truths about God that are just as true today as they were when they happened thousands of years ago. Um, and that in and of itself says something pretty significant about God, that he's so constant and faithful, like Natalie was talking about last week, that we can see his hand guiding these people so long ago, uh, and we can still learn from them and learn from their stories. And I'm really, uh, I feel really blessed to get to talk about Joseph tonight and about the end of his story, um, because what we see in him is something that I think we all have to face at some point or another, uh, maybe in different ways in our life, and that's this idea of holy and radical forgiveness. Um, it's something that's I've been really, like, working through, actually, um, for the past little while. So it feels very Holy Spirit-led that I'm here tonight. Um, I do want to kind of warn you up at the top that this is going to be a heavy sermon. <laughs> um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about human trafficking, a little bit about sexual assault. And so if um, it gets a little bit much, if you need to, like, take a breather, please do. Um, you know, grab some water take a walk around the building, whatever it is, um, is you need to just take care of yourself. All right, so yeah, this story, uh, it's been really speaking to me as I've been thinking and praying the last few weeks. Uh, but before I get into that, I want to do a, a quick recap of where we are, because, uh, you know, I know Natalie covered uh, a lot of this last week, but I, I wasn't here, so I just want to make sure we're all caught up and in the same place. Um, so we're talking about a guy named Joseph. He was the second youngest son of Jacob. Uh, Jacob had 12 sons total, so Joseph is number 11. Um, but he was also very clearly Jacob's favorite. And um, one would think maybe that if you're 11 of 12, you're clearly your dad's favorite, you would have some sort of chill about that. Like, you have 10 older brothers, you would maybe try to be friends with them, not rub it in their face that you're the best, but not Joseph. Uh, he was, um, he was very not chill and told everyone about these dreams that he had, about someday they were all going to bow down to him, he was going to be better than everybody. Um, and his brothers decided, you know, this kid needs to go. Uh, they, at first they want to kill him decide that's a little extreme, walk it back, and decide to sell him into slavery. We'll return to that. Uh, so Joseph works in the house of a prominent Egyptian and does well, as well as one could consider for somebody who's a slave and has no autonomy over their life. Um, gets promoted. Then his boss's wife wants to sleep with him. He says no. She falsely accuses him of assaulting her, and then he gets thrown in prison. And so as Natalie talked about last week, through all of this, Joseph remains faithful to God, and God remains faithful to him. And Joseph eventually gets to this point where he interprets uh, some dreams for Pharaoh uh, and is released from prison and is made the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. Importantly, he's also put in charge 
of all of the food stores for the country. Because part of the dream that Pharaoh had was um, a warning that there was going to be a large famine in and around Egypt very soon. And so uh, Joseph then led the country in storing uh, their surplus green so that Egypt, unlike the uh, countries and areas around them, would have enough to sustain them through the famine. And so this is kind of where we're picking it up tonight. We're not going to um, read the whole rest of the story because it's still like nine chapters. Um, so we'll jump around a little bit, um, but this is kind of generally where we are. The beginning of Genesis 42, and we see that famine has struck the land of Canaan where Joseph's father and brothers are all living. Um, so Jacob, he tells his sons, all of them except the youngest, Benjamin, uh, to go to Egypt and buy some grain so that the family doesn't starve to death. When these men all get to Egypt, who do they have to meet with? But Joseph, exactly. Um, so they have to speak with him personally in order to be able to buy grain uh, to bring back home. And um, so they, they come to him and they don't recognize him. But Joseph, of course, recognizes them. And we're going to walk through Joseph's response to his brothers in a moment, but I think it's really important for us to understand what's at stake here for him. Uh, this is, it's a story, if you're in the church, you've probably heard it often, um, and I think sometimes because of that, we lose a little bit of its effect and its impact. Um, so we don't really fully face the truth of what Joseph is doing here. His brothers sold him into slavery. This story really hit me different this time reading it after spending four months taking phone calls and texts from people who have been forced into modern-day slavery. This is, it's tough what has happened to him. If someone were to call me on the National Human Trafficking Hotline and give me Joseph's story, I would say, yes, you're a victim of labor trafficking with pretty high indicators of that. And so even though we see him in this place of authority, he did it by surviving a horrendous situation where all of his agency was stripped from him. He was forced to work. Um, he was um, harassed, imprisoned. If you just look at the names of his sons, you can see the depth of his pain in this situation. In chapter 41, uh, verse 51, it says, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. That's so tragic. And Joseph, he tried to forget, right? That's what Manasseh means. That was his way of coping. He tried to forget the pain, forget his family, and move on. But then his brothers came to Egypt. He realized he couldn't just forget. He had to face what they did, and he had to decide how to move forward from that, how to respond to them. I can't imagine how difficult this must have been for Joseph. I've never experienced anything like this before, um, but just from taking calls... And talking to people who experience this, this has been a major struggle for me spiritually over the past four months. Hearing how deeply evil 
people in this world can be. I've honestly never wanted the God of the Old Testament more, like the God who smites people. Like that God used to scare me and make me really uncomfortable, but I've never related more to David in the Psalms when he's like begging God to like destroy people, which is kind of a scary emotional place to be. And I know I've lived uh, a pretty privileged life. And so for me to be, you know, this old and, and kind of facing this, um, I know some of you, I'm sure, have experienced something like this already. Maybe not human trafficking, but something deeply traumatic that someone's done for you, for, to you. I'm sure some of you have experienced evil firsthand. So maybe you can understand Joseph's dilemma right now. It would be so easy for him to take revenge on his brothers. He could just deny them grain, and they would starve to death. But that wouldn't help Joseph, would it? It wouldn't help him heal. Instead, he embarks on this long, slow, nonlinear process of forgiveness. And the picture of forgiveness that he gives us here is not one that's weak or quick or that happens just because he trusted God enough. It's one that's coupled with justice. It's one that he struggles through. It's a picture of holy forgiveness that leans on and trusts in God's justice. So when Joseph's brothers come to him for green, he kind of plays with them a little bit, or at least that's how I read it. I used to read it. Uh, he tells them that he, they can take the grain home, but one brother has to stay as a hostage, but he'll be released if they all come back and bring their younger brother who did not come on the original journey. And this response he gives them prompts some self-reflection on the part of his brothers. So let's uh, turn now to chapter 42, starting in verse 21. And says, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. So we see this emotional turmoil that Joseph is in as he faces this trauma of his past. And we also see that his brothers know what they've done. They know that they sinned and they did something horrible. They know that they deserve to be punished. And their acknowledgement of that guilt, it brings Joseph to tears. And throughout this story, Joseph, he is very emotional, understandably so. He weeps again after his brothers come back and they bring Benjamin as he asked. And he still has this kind of back and forth with them. He sends them off again with more grain, but plants a cup in, Joseph, or in uh, Benjamin's bag so that they have to come back. Uh, and he accuses them of stealing um, and threatens to imprison Benjamin. Uh, but then Judah steps up and begs for Benjamin's life 
basically begs to take his place as a slave in Joseph's household. Um, And that moment, it prompts Joseph to reveal himself to his brothers, and they have this, again, emotional moment of of, um, recognition of one another. So it's this very kind of back-and-forth story. And to me, that reflects the fact that the path to forgiveness is fraught. It's not one magical moment where suddenly everything is fine and you finally come to peace with what has happened and now you can totally move on. Forgiveness, especially of something big and traumatic, happens over and over and over again. So for me, um, one way this has played out in my life, growing up, um, I grew up in a, a... very conservative church that said like women could not speak at all like couldn't pray out loud couldn't lead singing um and that was it was was pretty extreme um and it really affected my view of myself and my view of God and of myself in relationship to him and what like my place was there And, you know, even though I've been out of that for over six years now, I still carry the baggage from that for sure. And I still have to forgive the people who told me those things, right? Like every time I feel insecure about my voice and about speaking, or when I realize that this like unhealthy and weird behavior that I have is rooted in these lies that I internalized, I have to forgive again. And don't get me wrong, sometimes I just get mad and I rant and I vent because this is a really hard process. But in order to heal, I have to keep forgiving. Because I found out that if I don't, I become really judgmental and really cynical and I lose the ability to see the truth of God's grace. And one thing that I find fascinating in this story is that every time Joseph sends his brothers off, he finds a way to guarantee that they will come back. He knows that he will have to face them again. In my reading of this, he's giving himself another chance at reconciliation. Because maybe the first time, he wasn't ready. Maybe he had to work through that internally and with God before he could say that to them. But he doesn't shut his family out and he doesn't shut himself off from the opportunity of reconciliation. And in fact, I think, I think it's healthy that Joseph takes that time to work through this because that means that everything didn't hang on that one moment of their response. He had to work up to forgiving before he knew what their response would be. Because that way, his forgiveness wasn't dependent on their repentance. Their relationship depended on their repentance, but his forgiveness did not. That's really powerful. And it's also just such a picture of Jesus, right? Like, he sacrificed himself before we even sinned, let alone repented. He forgave, knowing some people wouldn't accept it. And we can't have a relationship with Jesus without repentance, but our choice never changes the fact that he made that choice first. 
Our choice never changes his sacrificial love. So let's look at this moment of uh, reconciliation now. It's in chapter 45, starting in verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Joseph trusted God's sovereignty above everything else. He didn't allow bitterness or unforgiveness to make his heart grow hard or cynical so that he would miss the way that God was going to redeem his story. Even when he reached the height of power and saw his brothers bowing before him and fulfill that dream that he had as a young man, he saw that this wasn't the end of the story. God didn't redeem him and redeem his situation just to bring Joseph glory. He saw that he was part of a greater story that God was telling. So we've talked about forgiveness, um, but I think in this we also get a sense of justice. Joseph gives his brothers the opportunity to see and understand what they have done. He puts them in his shoes where they're facing the prospect of enslavement, and they understand the weight of their sin. When they recognize him, they're afraid because they understand what they've done, and they understand what they deserve. It's not necessarily our world's definition of justice. There's not retribution or revenge, but this, is all, this isn't like empty forgiveness or empty grace. This is a type of justice, in fact, we all face. To see ourselves for who we truly are in the depth and weight of our sin when we come before God in repentance. But that's met with the beauty, right? The beauty of grace that's already offered, a grace that's offered to change us and make us new. And I do want to make really clear what I'm not saying in all of this. I'm not saying that every time something really evil happens in the world, it's because God has a super specific plan about how he's going to use it um, and that it can only be fulfilled through this one event. Uh, unfortunately, most victims of human trafficking do not go on to have a story that ends with them ruling a kingdom. Um, just not how it works. Sometimes really evil things happen because we live in a fallen and evil world. And that's heartbreaking. And much of the time, we don't get to see 
the justice on this side of things. A lot of the time, we have to forgive without that part. We don't get to see the repentance or the apology. We have to trust that God's redemption story is one of both justice and grace. That's one thing that Genesis and the Old Testament as a whole does for us. It shows us in these small, specific stories a glimpse of the grand redemption plan that God has for the world. And in these stories, we can see a reflection of our personal life and our personal story and how that fits into this larger meta-narrative. Joseph's story calls forward to ours, but it also calls forward to Jesus's, to the kind of forgiveness and grace and justice that he demonstrates on the cross. Jesus offers forgiveness to everyone, regardless of their sins, regardless of what we have done. All we have to do is accept that, to acknowledge him as our savior. But he does also promise justice, eternal justice, for those who seek themselves in their own, in their life, who choose to distance themselves from God while they're living. That's what he gives them eternally. And if we trust that, I think we can begin to rest in our weariness and in the pain that often mixes in with the healing as we forgive. Uh, Before I end, I want to quote from Rachel Den Hollander. She was one of the first women who spoke publicly about the sexual abuse that she experienced at the hands of Larry Nassar, um, who was... uh, sports physician for uh, gymnasts um, who abused hundreds of women and girls um, while claiming to treat them medically. At NASA's sentencing, over 150 women and girls gave victim impact statements talking about their lives uh, and the impact that his abuse had on them. I want to read a portion of Den Hollander's because she talks about forgiveness and justice so beautifully, like better than I could ever say it. It is emotional. It's pretty heavy, um, just to warn you. Uh, But she says the following, directly addressing Nassar in this part of her statement. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom, and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself lovingly sacrificing, uh, loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. In the Bible you carry, it says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds. 
In the Bible you carry, it speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt. So you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God. Which you need far more than forgiveness from me. Though I extend that to you as well. Kind of have to take a deep breath, like a collective deep breath after that one. She just says that so well, right? Like that image of forgiveness and of justice. But what do we do with it, right? Like it's one thing to read these stories of people who have faced these really terrible circumstances who are able to trust God, trust his plan, and to get to a place of forgiveness. How do we get there, right? What does that even look like? I think the first step, for me at least, has been recognizing the signs of unforgiveness in my heart. Because that will eat at you, and destroy you far more than it will hurt the person that you're holding forgiveness from. In my life, like I said before, I've seen it express itself primarily through cynicism and judgment. I find myself condemning people, looking down on them, thinking of myself as more holy and more righteous than them. I lose the ability to see them as God's children. And I lose the ability to see myself as flawed and sinful. I skew the gospel and make it what I want it to be. I also grow so much more cynical. It's like holding on to unforgiveness makes me lose the ability to see hope in the world. And to see the truth about God's redemption story. I get so negative and I read hopelessness into everything and then I begin to doubt God. And combating that is not easy, right? I'm not going to stand here and pretend that I've mastered it or that I've moved on from all of the bitterness in my life and I handle my job with grace and poise at all times because that would all be untrue. I'm just as much on this journey as anybody else. But something that has helped me is just to continue to remind myself of truth. To return to scripture, return to the truth about who Jesus is and the sacrifice that he made and his model of sacrificial love. Because it's so easy to ignore that and to ignore God when I feel broken with this kind of situation or lost in the hopelessness of it, but it's the only way I've found to begin to heal, is to come back to God with it. So even if I'm angry with God about the situation and I start to blame him, or just can't understand it, expressing those emotions to him is so much better than just ignoring him. 
wards off the cynicism and the judgment, and it reminds me of my own place in God's redemption story. And I also want to encourage you, if you find yourself in this situation, to give yourself permission to be in pain. I think we rush the healing process a lot, especially in Christian culture. Like, we just expect transformation to happen overnight, and that's not, like, how life works. Forgiveness does not bring automatic healing. Like I said before, sometimes you have to forgive the same person, the same sin, every day. Healing doesn't happen in a linear way. And facing past trauma can be just as painful as when it first happened. So last, I'd encourage you to talk to somebody about it. It doesn't have to be the whole world. They don't need to know your story, but whether it's a therapist or a pastor or a friend, someone who can walk through this with you, that external support is invaluable. Community is here for us when things are messy, and we're here to help each other through these moments when we can't handle it on our own. And they're here to remind each other of our place in God's plan, especially when we can't see it ourselves. And so um, the band, if you guys want to come back up as we um, close, close in song and, and have some, uh, some time to reflect, I want to encourage you to examine the places where you feel judgment and cynicism in your spirit. What is creating that? And who might you need to forgive or start to forgive? Feel free to, to talk to a staff member or a life group leader or somebody uh, here with you tonight to just like begin to process that. Like I said, it doesn't have to happen tonight. It probably won't. But to just like start the process. All right, so I'm going to uh, transition us in prayer now. God, I thank you for seeing me in light of the cross. God, for seeing me the way you want me to be, God, in the way that the way that I am after your redemption, the way that I am after your sacrifice. God, this world is really broken. And I don't want often to see it through your eyes. confess that I like to hold on to that unforgiveness sometimes because it's easier it's easier to blame other people it's easier to look down on them it's easier to pass judgment but God you made the effort for me God you brought people into my life who showed me who I could be in you who spoke truth over me 
spoke grace and forgiveness and mercy. God, and I pray that I would see other people that way too. Even when I really, really don't want to. Especially when I really, really don't want to. God, I hope that you, or I pray that you would help us to begin the healing process tonight. God, that we could find space in this community to begin to process our grief and our pain and our hurt. And that you would begin to show us the radical truth of your forgiveness and of your justice. And I pray that we could hold on to the hope of that even when we feel overwhelmed by our situation, overwhelmed by our pain, overwhelmed by our suffering, God, that you would show us your truth and remind us of the work that you're doing not just globally, not just on a huge scale, but in each of our lives individually. You would remind us who we are in you, God. We thank you and we praise you for all you are to us, for the way that you love us so sacrificially, God. We thank you. In your name we pray.